Welcome to A New and Ancient Story, a show dedicated to the transformation of self and society. We're moving from the story of separation to a new story of interbeing. We explore it all, technology, spirituality, agriculture, healing, economics, politics, ecology, relationships, education, because the changes that are gathering today will leave no aspect of our world untouched. For deeper engagement with these ideas, join our community at newandancientstory.net. Here I am, Charles Eisenstein, with Martin Shaw. Uh, I figured we'd kind of maybe like first exchange stories, mm. and then we can talk, use other kinds of words. Mm. Mm. Um, I, 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 by way of introduction, I heard Martin last night, heard you last night, tell a story mm. that felt like a true story. Yeah. And I really wanted to, sh- it just felt like something that uh, really landed on me and I wanted to share it. I wanted mm. other people to hear it. Mm. And, and like, you know how some, the way I can tell a true story is that it makes an imprint on me. Mm. Some of the, some of the, what we call fairy stories, I remember like the images like graven into my mind. Oh yeah. You know, from hearing them, my father would read them out loud when I was eight years old, nine years old. Yeah, I feel like true stories expand, expand me, like they change me. Yeah. And so I would just love for you to share the story you told us. Oh, night. okay, yeah, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So this is a story that I sort of bashfully admit I must have known for so long now. I, I can't remember where it came from. Mm-hmm. I can't remember who told it to me other than... Uh, it really is a very ancient fairy tale that crops up in lots of different cultures. So it's got a kind of nomadic agency to it. Mm-hmm. It's not particularly local, uh, although we always like to claim it as local, which is a whole other matter. So this is the story. Once upon a time, there was a lonely hunter. And one night, he was coming back tired through the forest, his whole body aching when suddenly he saw something up ahead that really frightened him, it scared him. He saw a thin trail of blue smoke coming from his own hut. So he goes down on all fours, there's blue snow underneath him, the moon is just coming out, and he kind of crawls to the door and peers in. And this is what he saw. He saw that somebody had prepared him a bowl of stew, delicious scent from the stew and there were herbs and great cuts of meat in it and vegetables, the whole thing. He could see that someone had lit a fire and most touchingly of all, he could see that his ramshackle little collection of clothes that we loosely call clothes, someone had washed them, stitched them back to health and put them in a little pile. I don't think anybody had ever displayed that kind of kindness to him before. week passes same thing every night same thing until finally he doubles back early pads over the snow peers through the door and this time this is what he beheld it's a funny thing didn't just see something he beheld it he saw that there was a woman standing with his back to him he saw that she was grinding herbs into this stew he could hear that she was singing low there's a great torrent of red hair down to down to her waist and he knew in the way that hunters know 
that he was in the presence of Fox Woman Dreaming. Now this woman is part fox, part woman, part spirit, and maybe something that's difficult for us to talk about anymore. I don't know what it is. But that's what he knew with his Aboriginal eye. He knew that's what she was. And she knew in the way that women know that she was being watched. <laughs> so she twirls and with a flash of those green eyes, you know, maybe it's an Irish story. She says, I will be the woman of this hut. And he looks at her and he says, mm-hmm, he knows a good thing. There's something in us that yearns to hear that. Mm. Hundreds of men stand behind us yearning to hear that. I will be the woman of this hut. And so that night, for the first time in his solitary little life, he sits at the ramshackle table with her. They light a candle. They eat food together. They tell jokes together. They sing together. They do the dishes together. You know, and that night, finally, in the small hours, when they make love, the walls of the hut dissolve into the blue the blue-green forest. So, I mean, we're all a little jealous. I mean, this is a fabulous scene. People wait their whole lives for something like this. It's what the Irish call radiant contentment. Mm. But you've got to know about the fox woman and fox women in general is that they have pelts. And their pelts are usually hung uh, on a nail in a doorframe. Now, this woman's pelt, like all fox pelts, takes on quite a strong regal scent at certain times of the year. You'd, a small price, you'd think, for all the love that's coming to the hut. But as time goes on, it really starts to nag on the hunter. And he's finding it hard to think straight. He feels like the scent of the fox pelt is in his clothes. He feels that it's in his mind. He feels that it's in his thoughts. He feels less efficient. He feels less rational. Until one night over dinner, he says, look, look, my love, you know, you know how thrilled I am to be in your presence. But it's just this one thing, just this one tiny thing. Would you consider just getting rid of the pelt? You don't have to burn the pelt. You don't have to disown the pelt. The pelt just has to, you know, go away. You know, I'll feed you as many gin and tonics as you want. Just just leave the pelt alone. And she has that sad look. That, you know, you understand. And she tries to ignore it. The months go on until finally, one night, all trace of charm has left the man. All trace of magic has left the man. And he slams his hand down on the table and says, I told you once before, get rid of the pelt. She nods. And she takes it into her body. What's happened? And in the morning, when the hunter wakes, he finds that the woman has gone, the pelt has gone, and the scent has completely gone from the hut. And they say, and say truly, that to this day, the hunter stands lonely in his whole body, for the scent of the pelt. I think 
ironically, that the West's the West has a very tortured sense of self-esteem, despite all the hyperbole indicating different. I think underneath it, in some way, we're aware of the deal we may have struck. Because you can't think straight with the pelt in your nostrils, with that sense of the animal tang. You make different decisions in the hut when the pelt is there. And there are certain ways that it seems human beings want to operate. They can only operate in such a function, providing that is all cleaned out of the hut. So I'm curious about the stories the West tells itself in private. Mm. Not Trump, not Brexit, none of that stuff. Mm -hmm. What is going on at two or three o'clock in the morning? And what are the stories that we're telling ourselves then? And being somebody, I don't know if you ever share this, sometimes I've got jet lag and I can't sleep. And nighttime is always when my demons line up and say, okay, let's have a conversation. And I think about this tiny little vignette of a story a lot. And I think about a very basic mythic thought. What have we, or what have I, sent into exile? Because myths insist that whatever we send into exile does not stay passive towards us. It will grow hostile. Mm -hmm. So when it comes back, it's not smiling. It's not singing Kumbaya. It's not, it's not giving out flowers. It comes back fierce. Uh, you know that image of... Uh, do you remember the image of King Arthur and Camelot? There's a round table, isn't mm -hmm. there, in those stories. Often I ask people, I just say, close your eyes now and tell me, imagine that, that such a table exists in your, in your body, in your psyche, in your life. Who's sitting at the table? Who's left? And usually there's, you know, a bucket of Kentucky Fried Chicken and some, you know pornography and a copy of Herman Hesse and that's about it you know and then we begin the business of talking about and stories are very good at this what is the difference between a seduction and a courtship culturally what is the difference because it seems to me we're living in a time where we are exposed to nebulous seductions daily but the capacity for courtship and it's the word I used to behold something, not just to see it. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a huge deficit of that, I think, and the despair that a lot of men and women of my age certainly feel about, the, even the possibility of love at this point, seems tied up with the absence of courtship. So, yeah. Yeah. Mm. I think one of the delusions of our time maybe seemingly rather small, a small delusion on the scale of the human drama, but actually I think it's a very important one, um, is that for a story like that f to be useful, we have to be able to decode it or interpret oh, yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I, I think that um, stories like that, that you know, give me that feeling of being in the presence of the truth, um, I hesitate to, to jump too quickly to an interpretation of them. I like, I like the story to sit with me for a while. Mm. And then perhaps I'll come to an interpretation or an interpretation will come to me. But when it's sat with me long enough, then I know that that interpretation isn't the whole thing. Mm. It's like 
interpretations of sacred stories are, are like trying to reduce the infinite to the finite, mm. like trying to reduce the world to money, for example. Mm. And something, and you can capture some of it that way, but there's also something missing to it. Um, but I think that your interpretation is also insightful and, and um, enlightening, but yeah, I just, um, <laughs> yeah, I really do feel like stories like that are such a gift. Um, we were talking in the car about the elves and the shoemaker that Lewis Hyde mm. discusses, you know, and, and reading his interpretation of it, it became apparent that every single line in there was absolutely necessary for the integrity of the whole thing. Mm. And absolutely perfect. And I couldn't imagine a human being designing it, like yeah. according to design criteria. I can only imagine maybe a storyteller telling it and saying and, and knowing that the next line is supposed to be this without even necessarily knowing why. Mm. But it's kind of the way that I, one of the ways that I, I kind of understand the importance of these things, you know, that they're not just like some anthropological curiosity, you know, or mm. some kind of something to put in a cultural mu museum in yeah. a collection of stories. They're like really relevant and super important and we can't make it without them. No, no, no they're alive. I mean, yeah. that's what they are. They're, they're alive. Uh, and also, I think a distinction that's worth flagging up now is I think you're talking about not pastoral stories, but prophetic stories. In other words, they're not necessarily the most reassuring of tales. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily bring comfort, but they bring shelter, which is something I, I often think about the difference between the two things. I lived in a tent for four years, and that was a definite trade of comfort, like the room I'm sitting in now with the, you know, the warm fire and the, mm -hmm. the reassuring table and everything telling us that nothing bad has ever happened, uh, to being out in this blustery tent. But it was in that place, I lived in a circle where the walls breathed with mm -hmm. canvas, that I was gifted the time and the attention to come across stories, stories also that kind of did away with the I statement. So you could make the most personal of disclosures in a way that reached its arms around the whole room rather than uh, endless personal narratives. And mm -hmm. I was aware at the time I just simply didn't want to do that. But to go back to your original point about how do we, how do we bear witness how do we bear witness to ancient tales in a, in a way that doesn't continue the sentiment of sort of devouring them? Mm -hmm. So in other words, after many, many years of telling that story and just sitting, sitting, sitting in the presence of it, often silently, you become aware, all storytellers do, of pressure points in the story, like acupuncture in the body, mm -hmm. the places you fall into again and again. And what happens delightfully is over time, the story starts to radiate a kind of intelligence that would not present itself if you trapped it prematurely. In fact, you should never trap it. The thing to do is to trail it. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, generationally, I notice when I'm teaching stories, the younger the audience, the more wonder is present. Mm -hmm 
the less people want an ABC, the less people want the story as a map, and much more what they're interested in is it as an atmosphere, an atmosphere, almost like a weather pattern to enter. Mm. And the wondering, the wondering, the wondering aloud seems to be the thing that keeps it, keeps it vital and not... Um, Friedrich Holdel in the, the poet says, you know, gods, be careful, you have become decorations in their poems. Yeah. You know, we don't, want, we don't need ornamental stories. Right. We don't need stories about the earth at all. What we need is stories with the earth, where the earth is actually speaking through it. And as you're saying, one of the reasons why fairy tales still have all this nutritional value in them is actually partially because they haven't been regarded as great works of literature. Mm-hmm. The fact they haven't been taken seriously, the fact that they've often been in the custody of women and children, has done the most incredible job of preserving this kind of ribald animism. Yeah. That's why I'm kind of a little wary of interpreting it, because yeah. it seems like that's a way of capturing it. Of course. But at the same time, I'm delighted um, when, I, when I come across a really insightful interpretation so it's it's a deli- it's you know what it is it's just a it's just a delicate dance and the other side you see uh, certainly in england story any form of interpretation of story is usually really taboo really taboo mm. it's seen as absolutely kind of clumsy possibly dangerous mm. you know all, all the all the spirit has left the room uh but i am not just a storyteller i am a mythologist and I, you know, that, that comes with a degree of rigor. It comes with the experience of telling the story hundreds of times. But more than that, I think trying to approach it in, a, in an efficacious manner. So in other words, I can always tell when a storyteller brings in a story to make a psychological point, it never works because the story doesn't really show up. Mm-hmm. However, if you just let the story show up over the years, the points it seems to make, the udders, the tail, the flash of its teeth, they organically start to land in the room. Mm-hmm. But it's a, you know, a kind of phenomenological perspective, really. You've got to wait. Yeah. You've got to wait. One of the forms of, of poverty in our society that, that, I, that's, that I've become acutely aware of is the poverty of the stories that we tell children now. Mm. I have... Once again, uh, a young child, my eldest is 20, but I have a three-year-old now. And so back into the world of children's literature and just most of the stuff is such garbage that I just shudder mm-hmm. to, to, you know, even have it in my house. But there are a few, a few that have that ring of a true story. Mm. Some by Dr. Seuss mm. um, that that have that, that, that capacity to burn images into my mind. And that, like one that comes to mind is, I don't know if you're familiar with How the Grinch Stole Christmas. I know the title, I don't know the story. I'll, I'll, I'll just quote the beginning yeah, lines yeah, of it. Yeah. Every who down in Whoville liked Christmas a lot, but the Grinch who lived just north of Whoville did not. The Grinch hated Christmas, the whole Christmas season. Now don't ask me why, I don't quite know the reason. It may have been that his head wasn't screwed on just right. Or perhaps that his shoes were a little too tight. But I think that the most likely reason of all was the heart in his chest was two sizes too small. Mm. And so it goes on and on. He ends up going down and, and stealing all their Christmas presents. 
and you know their their ornaments, their toys, even their feast, and then takes it all back up to the top of Mount Crumpet to dump it. Mm. And but then he hears, but he thinks I'm now now because he hates the noise of Christmas, and he listens, but instead of wails and cries, he hears them singing, so he has a change of heart, and then he comes back and delivers the gifts back to them. And, you know, my uh, analytic mind does begin to kind of decode the, mm. the myth. Mm. And it has that property that almost every line is perfect and necessary. There's one moment where he where he's stealing things from a house and um, and everybody who's ever read this book or saw the TV will remember it. When Cindy Lou Who, who is not more than two, comes out of her bedroom and and says, and because the Grinch is dressed up like Santa Claus. So she says, Santa Claus, why? Why are you taking our Christmas tree? Why? And the Grinch thinks up a lie and says, oh, I'm taking it back to my workshop. There's a light that won't light on one side and I'm taking it back to my workshop. And he thinks up a lie. And then, then he gives her a drink and sends her back to bed. And so that's like this kind of this moment of tenderness that doesn't seem to have an effect right away. So there's like all of these these things that that just. I mean, I read my kids' fairy tales, mm. also Grimm's fairy tales, other folk tales, as like a form of nourishment. You know, I feel like th these are nourishing. Mm. I wonder what what you think about, like what what could you tell tell us, me and whoever else happens to listen to this. Like, what do we do with our children and how do we interact with them in the world of story? When I was a kid, uh, I grew up in a house without a lot of things that my friends had. So we didn't have a car, we didn't have a phone, and we didn't have a television. We just had this little house filled with books uh, with a big forest behind. And interestingly, in the forest, there was a hospice. So I knew in the deep, dark wood, people were dying. I don't think I've ever said that out loud before, but yeah, that was in my young mind. But once, uh, and I've told this story many times, but it's important. Uh, my dad got me up early and he said, we're going to get up before the sun rises and something's going to happen. So we trotted downstairs, we went out the back door and we went for a walk. And as we were walking, and I don't know if he planned it or not, but he started to tell by heart an old Persian poem called Sorabin Rushdom. It's quite a long poem. And as he did it, all around us, dawn began to come. The sky began to change colour. Uh, you could see that the grass was glittered with dew. And I was only about five. And in my young cosmological little mind, the very elegance of my father's language procured dawn. Mm -hmm. There was no way the sun would have come up without my dad's poem. And what that did was, in a very uncertain world, stories and a storied language, stories with words with images in, even at five, I thought, oh, that's wealth. That's what wealth is. You know, that's wealth. That's being, that's like your saddlebags are filled with gold. If you have such command of language, you can speak intimately to a weather pattern as if it's an old friend. And I saw my dad do this. 
And then at night, my mother would read me books and lo and behold, the moon would come out. And so I had this naive belief, which I've never lost, that the older voices of men and women are more than them just reassuring me. They are brokering a lintel of that wonderful word relatedness over my head. Another thing that I think of when I think of our kids, and funnily enough, I've just started tentatively after 20 years to put a program together for young kids called Story Carriers, which I'm really excited mm. about. Total mayhem. It mm. is mayhem when they're in the room. You're telling them some old fairy tale and they're saying, but am I in it? Am I in it? And I'm like, of course you are. They said, but is there a Spitfire? Like these little planes from the Second World War. And I'm like, well, maybe. Is there a wolf in the Spitfire? So you have to... One of the things with children is, you know, you can't go out there and give a recital. The story has to be... My favourite word which connects really to when people are often saying, oh, how do I stay connected to my wild self? I just say, just be curious. Be a curious person and make unusual decisions. And, and I think this comes up against something that you've been thinking about. It's this, have a love of hopeless causes. Because real stories, by and large, reach a point where you are outnumbered and outgunned. And it is then, and it is only then, that magic enters the room. Or the miracles that Pat was talking about, or, or things that I've heard you saying too. So I think children like to see that glee. They like to see glee in older people. And as Yates said, old men should be explorers. Mm. Old women should be explorers. Um, yeah. Yeah. So this 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 image that that you've evoked of the the dawn kind of uh, being spoken into existence mm. Mm. Um, that reminds me of I think I've even written about this the idea that the world is made of story. Mm. I have a friend Bio Komalafe who got this from a Nigerian shaman. He said there are no facts; there are only stories. Mm. So many cultures understood, like the kind of the anthropological gaze would see it as they believed. But I would say that they understood that if they did not perform the, the ritual reenactment of the creation of the world, then the world would cease to exist. Mm. That if they didn't tell the stories about about the, the sun or the, the waters or the birds, then the fabric of reality would, unra would unravel, that their stories were an important part of reality. And, you know, we might look at that as kind of you know, superstition because we might say, well, you know, those cultures are extinct and the world is still here, isn't it? But from their perspective, the world did end, actually, when they stopped telling their stories when, for example, their stories were supplanted by the stories that science and that modern education mm. give us when they were taken away and put in schools. Mm. Like the world fell apart in a very real way mm. for them. And today, like one reason I'm so fascinated by storytelling is that at least on the political level and the social level, the world is definitely made of story. Mm. Like a corporation is a story, a government is a story, law is a story, money is a story. These things don't exist in physical reality aside from the, the interpretation of symbols, you know. 
And these are the things that are destroying the planet. Mm. I mean, mm. it's, you want to say it's just a story, but, mm. but why are we, why have we devoted technology to, to extraction and destruction and ecocide? Why? We don't even need to. Mm. We could live in beautiful, abundant harmony with this planet, even at current population levels. The, the, the scarcity, that, the, the war, I mean, all of that is because of the stories we're telling ourselves, mm. the mythology that we live in. And that's why I'm, like you were mentioning before, like, you know, Donald Trump, you know, and mm. politics and Brexit mm. and all these things. Mm. These are just like such like the superficial froth. Mm. But how can we be, how can our imaginations be so colonized that we would, lay, we would, we would allow the detritus, the imagelessness of those stories to become the fundaments of decisions we make. The European Union was so imageless in a way. Mm -hmm. It was so imageless. It couldn't have the power of nostalgia that Brexit created, the fantasy it created mm -hmm. of an England sort of before immigration, of which, of course, there, there really isn't much of an England before immigration. We only need to look at the history books to Before the Normans, it. was it? Or yeah, 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 I really, and, and back and back and back and yeah. back and back. But I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm curious if, I mean, one of the, it's an old, it's a, it's a rather abstract phrase, actually, but I do like it. Uh, have you ever heard of this phrase by James Joyce, aesthetic arrest? Mm, no, I don't think so. I think of it as the moments in my life when I have been absolutely claimed by the intensity of an experience. It could be a piece of music could be a smell it could be a color mm -hmm. but in some way that very old-fashioned word the soul seems to move in its oceanic waters now i don't think aesthetic arrest is the same thing as skills you learn like i've learned to appreciate ornette coleman but i didn't uh -huh. i didn't immediately appreciate ornette coleman it's taken time but as i get older and this is kind of circling back to your question about children one of the things I'm always, as a parent, I'm always asking my daughter is, you know, why did you choose that skirt over that skirt today? What's the, what's the color? What do you love? What has claimed you? Mm -hmm. What has claimed you? Not what you claim, but what, is, what has claimed you? So her imagination becomes more robust, more substantial. You know, the imagination is infused with consequence. That's the thing. It's hilarious. People think that the imagination is this neither here nor there. I, I don't know what it was like for you when I was, you were at school, but everyone was saying, Shaw is a dreamer. Uh -huh. And they were right. But these days, when I look around at my life, almost everything in it comes from handling, not just, I suppose, personal imagination, but what people would call, you know, the imaginal or the world soul or the, you know, mundus imaginalis, whatever the hell you want to call it or what David Abram would call the more-than-human world. Mm -hmm. The idea that there are these vital tendrils heading in all these directions. So, fairy tales, and the stories I think would be wonderful to have our children in the orbit of, are stories that have a multiplicity of intelligences in mm -hmm. them, embedded in them. So there are moments in the story where you wonder if you're hearing from the voice of a woman in a bearskin and sleeping in a hollow tree, or is it the raven passing overhead? Or is it the waterfall itself? How that gets handled in language magically by one person is almost unknowable, but it can be done.
it can be done. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's one of the things that I'm passionate about. Some of the storybooks that they make for, for little kids, they will copy a Native American story and illustrate it. Mm. Most of those don't do it for me either because they are kind of disembedded. There's, they're like what rabbit meant to a Native American child 200 years ago is very different from what rabbit means to somebody today. Like all of the reference of the, the elements of the story are different. It's like almost not the same story anymore. No. And I guess, and some of them still work, but some of them don't. Um, and I wonder, how do we come, how do we discover and tell stories that are true and relevant today? Do you tell new stories? No, I, I, I don't in the way we traditionally think of the word new. But what I'd like to go back to is this idea of stories you know, the, 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 the migrational connections of the word rabbit, say, mm-hmm. which you suggested. Now, I've just written a book called Scattlings, and the question in Scattlings, or one of the questions is, it seems to be that some stories are essentially placed-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, I call them slow ground stories. They're only really to be told in situ. Mm-hmm. Many of them are reluctant to be written down. Mm-hmm. They're usually not terribly dramatic. Mm-hmm. They just tell you about that bend in the river, that oak with the moss on the right-hand side. There's those kinds of stories. And then there are other stories that seem to be designed to have their um, their life in their suitcase. For example, the Arthurian romances. The Arthurian romances, there is growing evidence to suggest they originate in the Caucasus. Mm-hmm. They infiltrate into Britain via the Roman army they bed down for a few hundred years and then get reignited into what becomes the Mabinogi, the Book of Welsh Folk Tales, where we have mm-hmm. early versions of Parsifal and the rest of it. And then, much later on, uh, the Arthurian romances gets cooked up in the south of France with this incredible influence of Moorish Spain and Islamic culture, and the stories get better and better and better and better. But by now... Who can claim copyright over those stories? Is it a young woman in a small market town in East Anglia in love with, in love with the Arthurian romances? Is it a medievalist? Is it somebody from, you know, sitting by the Caspian Sea? So one of my interests is, there's no doubt about it, those stories do not mean whatever we thought they meant 500, 2,000 years ago, 1,500 years ago. Uh, but that doesn't mean they're not designed to travel. That doesn't mm-hmm. mean that they're not still filled with disclosure, but the disclosure is changing all the time. Sometimes that's disastrous. And I think you have to go back to your feelings that you described at the beginning of this is, is this feeling real or true or alive to me or not? One, one thing that I have noticed about stories, as I've learned to relate to them as living beings, mm-hmm. is that... They all have different personalities and different temperaments. Some of them are, and this this applies not only to stories that we would call fictional, but also 
to factual stories, stories about our lives. Some of them are very, very private and only are to be told in special, special circumstances. And they have to be told just right. And others are very promiscuous and love to spread around and don't have very good boundaries. You know, they don't, they just want to be told as often as possible. And some stories stay the same with each telling and others grow and evolve and then maybe they reach a final form. And so there's just a, a diversity. Some stories start as factual and then become, as they become more and more true, they become mm. less and less factual. Mm. And so I've been learning to relate to the stories that way. I, I can hear, I, I hear a lot of platitudinal stories. I feel stories that often boxing above their weight at the moment mm -hmm. to try and you know i i don't believe big questions are solved by big answers i never did uh, and and stories really one story is certainly not what we need at this point in time we need a myriad of stories you know uh, and as soon as i hear this kind of slightly cobbled together slightly epic story i know i've entered i've entered the field the polyth polytheism has gone to hell in a handbag and we're back to the monomyth. We're back to the big story. We're back to Joseph Campbell saying it's a hero with a thousand faces. Each story is essentially saying the same thing. That's absolutely not true. Not true. Of course, as human beings, we face certain, certain griefs that any culture can recognise, any, any joys. But there's, also, there's an awful lot more going on than that. And especially now. Uh, there were times, there were things being said, you and I were at a talk last night and the talk was, we're not local anymore, we're global. And we need to be careful about that kind of language. I think it, it, yeah. it makes me very uneasy. Yeah, I didn't agree with that yeah. sentiment at all. No, that, it, it yeah. just, it's, it's just too big, too platitudinal and, and it's absolutely abstract to me. Don't tell me that I love the earth because I don't. I don't love the earth. I love Hembury Woods. I love the south of Dartmoor, not the north of Dartmoor. I love that stretch of the Dart River next to Venford. I love that particular copse up in Hexworthy where my mother and father met. Don't tell me about the earth in general because I simply, it is too much, in, in Lakota terms, it's too much great spirit. Mm -hmm. Or in the words of Tom Waits, he, got this, he says, a song needs an address. Isn't that brilliant? A song mm -hmm. needs an address. Otherwise, I got to hear it's you know, I got to hear something. I got to taste something that, that that grounds it a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Which is kind of the opposite of the the formula that we've been given for changing the world. You know, you have to abstract general principles, universal I know. principles. I know. I know. And then you take those universal principles and you apply them to local situations. It's more efficient that way and and one solution fits all uh, and that's I mean that was the critique I was making last I think it was I can't remember when been doing a lot of speaking but about the word the economy and how even that concept is part of the problem mm. because it presupposes that everything is going to be converted to a standard unit of account that applies mm. everywhere for it to be the economy mm. that that everything from one place is tradable with something from somewhere else. Everything is commensurate according to a single currency. And that means that the multitude of values 
needs to be converted into one thing called value, mm -hmm. which obliterates everything unique, everything personal, everything relational, everything local, mm -hmm. uh, everything qualitative. And I think maybe what, what you're saying is kind of the same for, for like these universal meta-narratives, which I'm just kind of thinking about, like, gosh, you know, like, I write universal meta-narratives, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'm talking about a transition from an age of separation to an age of interbeing. Mm. And yes, and, and good for you, you know, they just, it's not going it, to, and it's going to work for many, many thousands of people. It's not going to work for me. Uh, but but for, there's a lot a lot of folks that that, that that it can it can ground it can give them a field to navigate out of you know it's a lens you know I just yeah. offer it as a lens you know or a map yeah and yeah. maps are any map is useful any map illuminates some features of the territory but obscures of others of course it does yeah. so here's another question do we still have the capacity to actually hear stories? like real stories in the way you describe. Seamus Heaney has a lovely phrase about being able to, to really appreciate poetry. He calls it tuning your ear, mm -hmm. the idea that your ear has to be tuned. And one of the things that's been quite a labour in 20 years of, of me working as a storyteller is realising that people, they almost don't know how to hear them anymore. Mm. And... The, how do they resist hearing them I'm curious. they don't uh it's not ironically it's not that they don't have attention span that's the most peculiar thing i can be in front of people with all kinds of what they call attention deficit disorder a lot of it goes away once the story is in the room but the notion that there are moments in an ancient story that clearly happened to you on the way to work this morning mm -hmm. is a shock it's a real shock that suddenly this ancient intelligence seems to have shown up exactly on time 5,000 years ago to tell us about the moment we're in right now. And so my little school, more than anything, where I work with people for about a year, is simply the, the tuning of an ear where you, it's, it's even more than metaphor, you just sit in the radiance of an image. Because one of the things I think there's just such a deficit of uh, in all the conversations we're having, whether it's the earth sciences or economics or whatever it is, I just simply don't hear enough images within the language. It's not what we call a storied language, which means it's lost its connection to the earth. When I was writing Scatlings, this book, a lot of it was looking at words that farm folk used round here that were not regarded as important enough to be put in a dictionary. Wow. And you know what? Most of them are Arabic or Mediterranean. We've got all of these uh, farming terms around here for calling animals to you or shooing them, which is a Mediterranean term, and it comes from trading routes that we must have had thousands of years ago that is simply being deemed uncivilized language and so i thought all right i'm up for that i'll go around and try and collect some uncivilized language hmm. uh, and in my book it's half a chapter but for someone else that would be they could do something much bigger and grander with it yeah you know when i was growing up around here farmers never said it's autumn they said it's beat singling time everything came with an image mm -hmm. everything came and so in some little way my little body was always being fed 
with images. I, autumn, I didn't know what autumn was or what winter was. It was always connected to something that was actually unfolding around me, something that I could put my hands on. In, uh, you know, David Abrams thought it would be, you know, that's the sensual range was, mm -hmm. was absolutely present in the languaging itself. Again, it felt like wealth. Again, it felt like something that I could eat. I could eat these words. I could eat these ideas. I'm really curious, actually, at the moment, um, why... When I became a, I did a doctorate as a mythologist. One of the things I had to chew over, of course, was was philosophy, mm -hmm. and a lot of French philosophy. Yeah, and that can be rather arid terrain at times. But contained within it are some fabulously interesting mental workouts. Mm -hmm. But my curiosity is, why do we have to torture language to such a degree? when we want to think very deeply. And I wondered if you just got any thoughts about that, because I'm interested in, I care about beauty, and I don't believe that eros, let's call beauty eros for a minute, eros and rigor. Eros and rigor should be intertwined. They shouldn't be separate. But how many artists do you know that say, oh, oh that's just eggheads. I don't want to think about that. I just want to get back into my body. Don't make me think that. And then, of course, we've got other ones, uh, friends of mine who are saying, oh, Martin, come on, this is too much like an interpretive dance. You know, get me back to, uh, you know, Derrida. Uh -huh. Well, <laughs> I'm a little bit suspicious of the word rigor. Yeah. Which actually means stiffness, as in rigor sure. mortis, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, I like, that's really good. That's good. I like that. I like rigor. Because I don't think... Who's got it now? Anybody? What other word could we use then? All right, For me, like, rigor. I mean, I, I tend to, I mean, you know, like, words don't necessarily mean what they used to mean and stuff. I mean, for me, it's more a matter of um, attentiveness and patience. and But really attentiveness, like holding something in attention until I can see everything about it. Oh. So, like, the, the kind of mental gymnastics you're talking about, yeah. I think that that might be an attempt to attain the infinite through finite means. I see. Like, you know, maybe if you use words to deconstruct the deconstruction of words that are used yeah. to deconstruct words, that sometime you'll get to something that is actually not in the semantic dimension of words. Yes, yes, you know it's it's in the yeah. it's in the I don't know word I would use for it the the prosody or the the vocality or the um, mm. the and the, and the embedment of the words in stories, like we in the modern age want to I mean this was the dream of Leibniz you know to mm. to have words that were so perfectly defined that there would be no room for uncertainty no room for argument that mm. that no ambiguity. And so words became a product of their definitions. Like, the, like what is a word? If you ask what is a word, then, well, look it up in the dictionary. Like what does it mean? That question is interpreted as, as a matter of finding an explicit definition. But that's not actually how anyone learns language. No. And what if we learned or, or understood words as gaining their meaning from the stories that they're used to tell. I'm just kind of groping here, actually. Yeah, no, it's but good. I like it. 
I guess deconstructionism is it brings us to the to the futility of ever getting to the bottom of this endless regress of definition. Mm, mm. And and you know then the next thing is to deconstruct deconstructionism, and that doesn't even get you any closer either. No, no. I mean, I, a lot of my life is living is being outdoors. So I'm in woods and forests and. Um, desert and more 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 than anything uh, which is kind of high land very near where i live uh, and that kind of language you would never ever use to announce your arrival in a holy place it would damage the animals mm -hmm. i'd go that far it would damage the animals to speak of them in such a manner but around here in the old stories when animals can still speak and they come to you occasionally which sometimes happens when people are out fasting and animal will just come and start talking mm -hmm. to them and the animal will say to you do you know the story of fox woman mm -hmm. and you say no and they'll say do you know the story of ivan the bear's son and you say no and they say do you know the story of gawain and ragnell and you say no and the animal says then i can tell you nothing mm -hmm. and they disappear into the dream time and are mm -hmm. gone and so certainly for many years i'm very i am sensitive around language that it still has you know hoof prints in it mm -hmm. somewhere uh, there's a lovely line by Lorca. it's not a line it's not a poem it's genuine advice Lorca, the poet said make sure that whenever you're writing you write with green ink otherwise black ink scares away the little spirit animals that live in your hand Hmm. And I thought, all right, so a lot of my students write with green ink because they don't want to scare the spirit animals that live in their hand. Uh, hmm. yeah. yeah. So, yes, uh, funny enough, Mirchi Eliadi, uh, that great sort of thinker from the late 20th century or mid to late 20th century, said, he said, actually, in his mind, arid academic language Believe it or not, he said this is an attempt in a modern climate to create initiatory speech. In other words, it's there that that's nothing. It, it's a it's a way of it's a form of discourse that the rookie cannot get anywhere right. near. And in Bardic, funnily enough, this has been going on in the Bardic schools of ancient Ireland. When you were going to go into a combative situation over usually a poetical chair, you were going to become an Olav, which is like a top poet. <laughs> you didn't just go. <laughs> Well, it should be me because of this. You, you engage in something called dark speech. And dark speech is high-end, gnostic, highfalutin, poetic language. And at some point that no normal person could ever recognise, one of them realises the other one has won and they back off. But it happens in <laughs> it's this... It's just what academics do, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. 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 And, and, and um, I love this idea. He said, he said we are... And I do think that there's a point in this that we will eternally attempt clumsily to recreate certain kind of initiatory experiences. A lot of my background has been working with at-risk youth, being with teenagers and gangs mm -hmm. and stuff. You see in a fraction of a second, if you're in a prison, oh, I see what's going on here. I can see it, of course. This is, this is ancient tribal stuff mm -hmm. where any kind of elegance has got blown away. But the thing, the echolocation at the centre of it is people trying to become real human beings and yeah. it's just gone awry. Yeah. Yeah. So maybe I'll ask one more question. 
Uh, sure. I, I mean, this is something that comes up in every conversation I'm involved in, whether it's around money and gift economics mm. or eros or healing. I mean, and now this this language, what do we do when we're when we're in a condition where we're already marooned in this world of abstractions and generic commodities and where every where where all of the reference points of our lives are displaced? Like, what do we do? Mm. We, f we, we fall in love. And that's more than Eros. So my final throw of my hat into the ring would be, this is, this is a question, that, and I hope you and I can kind of continue this conversation over time now, is the troubadours who I love, the 12th and 13th century troubadours, talk about something, a variant of love, which is not <laughs> scattergun Eros, it's called Amor, A-M-O-R, which mm -hmm. is lovely because you turn it round and it spells Roma, which is like the, you know, the societal obligations of the day. If you want a truly revolutionary mindset or heart set, actually, uh, nothing claims us like Amor does. So often when I hear people, for example, talking about how do we have a profound reinvigorating of our relationship to the living world, we talk about the the we talk about eros. We talk about the dapple of sunlight over our skin. All of that stuff, that's fine. That's great. It's important. It gets us into our bodies. But like you, I get to travel to all sorts of places, and wherever I go, the locals always say, "You do realize this is the most beautiful place in the world." Mm. And I see their eyes filled with tears, and I believe them for them. Mm -hmm. But what I'm curious about is what is it in us. That means we are not claimed indiscriminately everywhere we go. I'm thrilled and interested where I go, but I do not experience heart sickness when I'm not there. But believe it or not, there are times, and I bet, you know, most people have experienced this, when you are far from your, what we could call your home ground, there's a kind of sorrowing that comes that you're not there it happens with people sometimes happens with your family mm -hmm. but it also happens with a place uh, there's a Welsh word which I'm now going to mispronounce called Hiraeth and it's it's a kind of indefinable longing mm -hmm. and to support your you know we've only just briefly met but this idea that you know to speak up for the irrational to speak up for you know, the way really emerges when there is no way. Um, an old Irish image about longing, which is also a Sufi image, which is this. The acute feeling of longing in your chest is the voice of God speaking back to you. It's not to be diffused. It's not to be yoghurt out of you. It's to be, it's to be in the Irish language of myth, they say you make an altar in your heart for the bird that has flown away. I can't think of anything less politically correct, but that's so fantastic. How could that be that I should make an altar in my heart for the bird? Isn't that a, isn't that a license for absolute misery? But they say no. Hiraeth is at the essence of all ritual worth its name, deserving of its name. So uh, I suggest in the times of what do we do? Uncolonize our imagination, experience ascetic arrest, get claimed by a place. And for me, a deeper, as, as I'm in middle age now, my 
longing for a more is is much more pronounced than when I was a young man. I, I didn't, but when I was a young man, I would go from flower to flower to flower to flower, aesthetically, but I wasn't really claimed by any of them. Mm-hmm. And at this point, I, I long for the moments when I'm profoundly claimed. But when I'm claimed, the deal I have to strike is this. I have to trade growth for depth, usually. I can't endlessly grow in mm-hmm. the way that everybody wants me to. I have to deepen. And to deepen, and I believe this often only my parenting, you know, what a what a tricky thing that that can be. Often I'm at my best as a parent when I accept certain limits to what I can do mm-hmm. and I work within the limits. Endless freedom is, I find choice quite tyrannical these days. I, you know, it's, uh, yeah. To exchange growth, growth for depth. Um, I think that that can be fruitfully applied to economics as well. And so you're actually giving very paradoxical advice. It's almost not in the category of advice. It's more of an implication because to say, really you're saying to be claimed by something, mm. that's not something you can do. No, of course but, it isn't. And, and I think that one of the uh, habits of our civilization, of our at least of our culture, is to turn everything into something that you can do mm. through your own efforts. And therefore, when you succeed, you get to take credit for it having happened to you. <laughs> Yeah, But the paradox here is that even though being claimed by something isn't something you can do and maybe isn't even something that like we want to turn it into a formula of some sort like, okay, so what do I have, what do I have to do? Yeah, Martin, yeah. do I have to surrender? Yeah, is yeah. that what I have to do? Like, yeah. Tell me what to do. Yeah, yeah. And, and all of that, like, willful surrender is fake surrender. Yeah. So nonetheless, nonetheless, I'm certain that simply invoking this experience of being claimed by something mm. of being convicted by something of being seized by, of being pierced by of being arrested mm. by something that uh, it gives a kind of um it generates a field for that to happen it, it creates it creates mm. the conditions mm. and guess what you don't have to do anything mm. For that, like it's already like once you've insinuated that mm. into us mm. directly as you have, but maybe mm. there's stories that insinuate it much deep, much more deeply. There are stories, yeah. and that's all you have to do. I notice this because up on Dartmoor, where I live, new growth pine forest was grown specifically for the <clears throat> making of timber for warships. So we have these forests that I regard as kind of ghost forests or war forests. Mm -hmm. And when I go in there, I know the trees are looking at me, looking at them, thinking that I look at them as a piece of two by four. Yeah. So the first thing that I do is how do I move my gaze in the living world from devouring to being devoured? So my attention with things like the wilderness vigil what many people call vision quest the reason we fast is we are going out there and saying take a look i will grow visibly weaker in your presence and i don't come here uh to really take much i mean the problem is you see people still go out hoping to get fixed you know nature will fix them yeah and that 
gets them out there. But I mean, it's still on the take. It's mm -hmm. still from the devouring mode. Uh, whereas animistic cultures, I would suggest, tend to say, no, you're going to have to get devoured for a while. You're going to have to get elegantly disintegrated. Mm -hmm. Once you have been in the slipstream of that, you get close to something which uh, I think about a lot called wildland dreaming. And wildland dreaming is a very strange experience where for a period of time, it would appear you get dreamt. You're not thinking anymore or moving through conventional griefs or thoughts or even your own kind of psychoactive patterns. Mm -hmm. Something bigger has come. That, for me, is a kind of claiming. Uh, and many Aboriginal teachers will say that modern culture is only three days deep. It's mm -hmm. only three days deep. So if you stick it out for four, on the last day something may interesting may happen. And my, all of my own work has come out of the impossibility of having that experience when I was a young man and trying to build a storied language around it that ultimately meant it could be given as a gift, mm -hmm. as a gift. Mm -hmm. But this thing about being claimed... I think about William Blake. If we went for a walk, boom, here's William Blake. And he says, come, come for a walk, he's a Londoner. Mm -hmm. he, he says, look, look, there's this little grey man on the floor. Let's look at the little grey man. I can see a little grey man. And you and I kneel down and we see a thistle. But Blake, we see Blake beholds. Mm -hmm. And so I would have to suggest that it's not, although it's not quite something we can do, quote, unquote, a certain degree of curiosity and you know through fairy tales we get led through the woods usually not by vast revelations but by a thin trail of plum cake or yeah. a little a little piece of meat that when your belly is stuck to your spine one of Baba Yaga's birds just drop in your mouth mm -hmm. so for me constantly the move towards a degree of wonder usually comes from very small things this has been a new and ancient story with your host, me, Charles Eisenstein. This is entirely a gift-based podcast. By that I mean I never market to subscribers or withhold premium content for a price or do affiliate marketing or have advertising on my site, none of that. Instead, I rely on supporters. If you would like to support this work, you can subscribe at newandancientstory.net for a small monthly amount. Uh, you can also subscribe for free Either way, you will be notified automatically every time a new podcast episode comes out. At the same site, you can also find archived episodes along with my blog, which is also called A New and Ancient Story. The rest of my work, essays, articles, books, videos, recordings, things like that, are mostly on my other site, charleseisenstein.net. So thank you very much for listening. I'll be with you again next time.